You may be seated, and if you would, find your Bibles and open up to Revelation chapter 2. Returning this morning to our study of the book of Revelation, we are right in the middle of the seven letters from the risen Son of God to the churches of Asia Minor. And if you do not have a Bible, uh, the words of this letter will be on the screen behind me. Be reading out of the English Standard Version. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching. Who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you I say I do not lay upon you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." At First Baptist Nixa, we are committed to the practice of what is known as expository preaching, which means that we select in prayer and we pray under the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We select a book and we work through it, a passage at a time, so that the week prior, we preach one passage and this week we come to the next and next week, Lord willing, we'll be in the next passage. And what that means is that we are not enslaved to what is known the tyranny, what is known as the tyranny of the urgent. In other words, we don't preach to urgent felt needs or else we would never get to the text. Rather, we preach the text and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to the needs of the people in the wisdom and the providence of the Holy Spirit, which means this. It means that on this December 27th, having spent the last several days celebrating the birth of Christ and using words like joy and peace and love, we come here this morning to hear a message of judgment, which is not what I I would have chosen to preach on on this last Sunday in 2015. I would have chosen something with a much lighter feel. But because of the commitment of this church and because of my commitment as your pastor, I can only imagine that by the providence of the Holy Spirit, he knew before the foundations of the earth were laid that on December the 27th, 2015, we would be hearing this message of judgment from the risen and exalted Christ and that from the foundations of the earth, he knew and ordained that you would be here to hear it. So I invite you to open your ears to what Jesus says to the church, to this church, to you this morning. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 19, Jesus made an astounding statement to the apostle Peter. He said this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Two chapters later, in Matthew 18, Jesus repeated the same promise in the presence of all of his disciples, which makes it clear that the keys of the kingdom of which Jesus speaks do not belong to the Apostle Peter alone, but rather belong to the entire church. The church is the visible and earthly expression of the invisible heavenly kingdom. And it is the church which possesses the power and the authority to open and to shut the gates of the visible kingdom of God on earth. And assuming that the church exercises this power and this authority in accordance with the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, the opening and the shutting of this visible kingdom on earth, the church, is synonymous with the opening and the shutting of the gates of the invisible kingdom of heaven. Now, if what I just said sounds strange to you, and maybe you're a little confused as you're hearing this for the first time, I wouldn't at all blame you. Churches don't often talk like this anymore. But let me see if I can provide a bit of clarity. The church is the visible earthly expression of the kingdom of God in heaven. It's the visible expression on earth of the invisible kingdom in heaven. And Jesus has given to the church the keys of the visible expression of his kingdom. And so when we admit into the membership of this church an individual, we are exercising the power of the keys that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 16 and later in Matthew 18. When we admit someone into the membership of First Baptist Nixa, we, the church, are saying to this new member, based upon the evidence of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Redeemer, the evidence of your repentance of sin and your professed desire to follow Jesus as your Lord and King, We believe that you have been made a new creature in Christ by the Holy Spirit. We believe that your sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. We believe that you are a co-heir with us of the kingdom of God. That's what church membership means. It is the church exercising the power of the keys to open up the gate to somebody which is an embracing of their profession of faith saying that based upon the evidence of your life and the profession of your faith and repentance in Jesus, we believe that you are saved. We believe that you are a citizen of the heavenly kingdom and so we grant you citizenship into this earthly expression of his kingdom known as the church. By wisely and cautiously unlocking the gate to this visible earthly expression of the kingdom of God and granting entrance through church membership, we affirm and testify that the believer has entered through the gates of the kingdom of heaven. Now, granting church membership on earth does not unlock the gates of heaven but rather is an open, visible acknowledgement that the individual has already entered the kingdom of heaven by faith. Now in Matthew 18, when Jesus repeats the same statement, the context is different. In Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus is addressing his disciples on the subject of church discipline. Speaking of the unrepentant man who has been warned twice, but so far to no avail, Jesus says this, Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, namely the two that have gone to confront him about his sin, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, the same keys of the kingdom which unlock the gates can also be wielded by the church to shut them. When a church member engages in open, 
unrepentant, outward, serious sin, the kind of sin which, if characteristic of a person's life, Paul says, excludes them from citizenship in the kingdom of God. Check it out, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Then this outward, serious, unrepentant sin calls into question the genuineness of their repentance and faith. And in such a case... In much sorrow and with many tears, the church must use the keys granted to it by Christ, who is the head of the church, to shut the gates of the visible earthly expression of the invisible kingdom of heaven by excommunicating that individual from the church, excluding them from our presence. But the church always does so in hope. For Paul writes of the same process of church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, remove him from your midst. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's the purpose of church discipline. So by exercising the power of the keys to remove a man from membership in the church, shutting him outside the gates of this visible kingdom, and thus delivering him over into the dominion of Satan in the kingdom of darkness, the church is saying to the man this, based upon your serious and unrepentant sin, we believe that you are presently excluded from the kingdom of God. We can no longer affirm your profession of faith. We can no longer affirm your salvation. We therefore call upon you to repent in order that you may escape the judgment that is coming upon the world. Now again, exercising church discipline to exclude a person from the visible church does not bring about their exclusion from the kingdom of heaven, but rather is an open acknowledgement of what is already true in heaven. Namely, that the unrepentant sinner is not a citizen of the kingdom of God. In other words, he is not saved. Jesus has granted to the church on earth, to us, First Baptist Nixa, authority to open the gates of the visible kingdom through church membership and authority to close the gates of the visible kingdom through church discipline. And if the church wields the keys of the kingdom rightly in the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with the word of God, then what is done on earth is in unison with what is done in heaven. Now, what happens if a church abdicates their responsibility to wield the keys of the kingdom? What happens if a church refuses to exercise the power of the keys, believing that it is somehow unloving or unchristlike or unbiblical to refuse entrance to an unrepentant sinner or to exclude an unrepentant sinner and remove them from our midst? What happens if a church refuses to practice biblical church membership and biblical church discipline? Well, quite frankly, all hell breaks loose in the church. When the church will not wield the keys of the kingdom, both in terms of biblical church membership and biblical church discipline, then inevitably false doctrine will infiltrate the church through false teachers, and with them all manner of ungodliness will result, for immorality is always the bitter fruit of heresy. See, a church is a fortress. A church is a fortified outpost of the kingdom of God in the midst of enemy territory from which we launch assaults on the kingdom of darkness through evangelism and missions. You ever thought of us like that? We are a fortified outpost located in the midst of enemy territory. But because we are in the midst of enemy territory, Satan and his forces of darkness are constantly launching assaults on us. 
So in this metaphor of the church as a, as a fortress in the midst of the kingdom of darkness, refusing to practice biblical church membership and biblical church discipline would be like leaving the gates of the fortress wide open and allowing anybody to come in without a careful examination and, and allowing anybody to remain inside even if they're found to be conspiring with the enemy. A church that refuses to exercise the power of the keys will soon be overrun by sin and by Satan, and it will only be a matter of time before the judgment of God falls, swift and severe, and the church is no more. This is exactly what was happening in the church at Thyatira. It's not that there weren't good things going on in the church. There were. Their latter works were were greater than their former works. The problem was that they had abdicated their responsibility as the keeper of the keys. They had allowed a false prophetess to reside in their midst. And when she began deceiving the servants of Christ with her lies and seducing them with her charms... They neglected to do anything about it. They tolerated her. And for that, the judgment of Christ was coming upon the church. You catch this? The judgment of Jesus was coming upon the church at Thyatira, not for something that they had done, but for something that they had refused to do. The church at Thyatira represents many evangelical churches today. Churches that are active in love and service and faith and patient endurance. Active in missions. Active in ministry. But utterly negligent when it comes to keeping and wielding the keys of the kingdom. And this negligence that threatened to destroy the church in Thyatira will destroy churches today as well. So our prayer is that God would grant us ears to hear the Spirit's message to this church, lest we be guilty of the same dereliction of duty. Thus far in the seven letters, we have journeyed up the western coast of Asia Minor from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum, and with this letter, we begin to move inland to the east from the Aegean Sea. To the city of Thyatira. Thyatira lacked the political and the religious significance of other cities, but it prided itself on being a center for commerce and manufacturing, chief among which was a thriving metalworking industry, particularly bronze. And it was also a center for the production of dyed fabrics. You will remember from Acts chapter 16 that Paul's first convert in the city of Philippi was a woman named Lydia who was from Thyatira and was a seller of purple garments. Each of Thyatira's industries was dominated by a trade guild that was dedicated to a particular pagan god or goddess. And so as industry was the heartbeat of the city of Thyatira... And these pagan trade guilds, unions of of a sort, dominated the industries, then it would have been nearly impossible to live as a citizen of Thyatira and earn a living in Thyatira without worshiping these pagan deities and participating in these pagan festivals. In other words, life for the saints in Thyatira was extremely difficult. And that provides the context in which this particular heresy took root in the church because this false prophetess came to them and said, it doesn't need to be so hard. You don't need to exclude yourself from these trade guilds, from these pagan feasts. Why are you tying yourself all in in a knot about participating in this idolatry and this immorality. Your life 
isn't supposed to be this hard, said the heretic. To the church in Thyatira, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. That Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God, by the way, the only explicit reference in the entire book of Revelation to him being the Son of God, it's probably due to the fact that he's going to quote at the end of this letter from Psalm 2, a psalm which describes the authority which God gives to his Son, the Messiah, Jesus, to conquer, to rule, and to judge the nations. Judgment, in fact, is the theme of this letter. In case you didn't catch that when he says, I'm going to strike her, woman, her, her children dead. Judgment is the theme of this letter. And that's why he selects those two attributes from the vision of, of Revelation 1. His eyes like flames of fire, his feet like burnished bronze. Both images come from the vision of the Son of Man in chapter 1 and come from the, the heavenly man in Daniel 10.6. And both speak to his ability to judge. His eyes like flames of fire that burn through our masks and our hypocrisies and our deceptions. You know, those things that we say and those facades that we put on that fool every one of us, but they don't fool him. His feet like burnished bronze speaks of his strength and his purity to execute judgment in righteousness, both upon the church, evidently, and upon the nations of the earth. So by introducing himself in this particular manner, Jesus is saying the same thing that the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17 when he said, it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Jesus is writing to the church at Thyatira saying, it is time for judgment to begin here. But before he pronounces judgment, He commends the church, saying in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Bear in mind that the church at Thyatira was, by and large, alive, loving, trusting, serving, persevering. In fact, I would say that the church at Thyatira was faring better than the church at Ephesus, which had left their first love and had departed from their first works. The Ephesian church had ceased to shine the light of Christ into the darkness of the surrounding world, and so Jesus Jesus came and threatened to remove their lampstand. But the church at Thyatira was continuing to shine, continuing to shine forth into the darkness, and in fact... Their works, their love and faith and service and perseverance were increasing. Their latter works were greater than their former works. But there was something, something that threatened to extinguish their light. A great evil had infiltrated their ranks and it threatened to destroy the church from the inside out. And it is this evil which Jesus wrote to the church to address. And it's this evil which the Spirit brings our attention to this church to observe. In verses 20 and 21, Jesus describes the evil that threatened the church in Thyatira. And as it turned out, this evil had a name. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, And is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Evidently in the church at Thyatira there was a false teacher. A self-proclaimed prophetess who had gathered to herself quite the following within the church. More than likely her name was not actually Jezebel any more than there was actually a man in the church at Pergamum named Balaam. Rather, Jesus' point is that the prophetess in Thyatira resembled the Jezebel of the Old Testament, who likewise led her husband and all the people of the northern kingdom of Israel into idolatry and sexual immorality. You can read about her in 1 Kings 16 and 21. 
Jezebel, if you want to know what Jesus is saying when he selects Jezebel and applies her name to this particular woman, Jezebel has no equal when it comes to wickedness among women in the Old Testament. I mean, she is the worst. The actual heresy, which was propagated by this Jezebel, was very likely similar to the Nicolaitan heresy that we've already come across in these letters. Both occurred in the same geographic region of Asia Minor, and both produced the same fruit of idolatry and sexual immorality. While the precise nature of this heresy is not explicitly stated, there are a couple of clues sufficient for us to piece together a rough sketch of what it looked like. Those two clues that are of particular importance in ascertaining the nature of this heresy that was decimating the Thyatiran church are these. Number one, this heresy produced licentiousness, which means a license to sin in the form of participating in pagan feasts, eating food sacrificed to idols, and sexual immorality. Number two, in verse 24, Jesus refers to it as the deep things of Satan, which is probably an ironic description which Jesus used for what Jezebel and her followers likely themselves called the deep things of God. Do you remember back in the letter to the church at Smyrna, Revelation 2.9, when Jesus refers to the local synagogue there as a synagogue of Satan? Well, that's likely not what the Jews themselves in Smyrna would have called it. They probably would have called it a synagogue of God. But in Jesus' estimation, it was a synagogue of Satan. The same thing is going on here with this particular heresy. They didn't refer to it as as the deep things of Satan. You're probably not going to gather much of a following by advertising your particular doctrine as the deep things of Satan. Rather, they are saying, hey... You want to truly know the deep things of God? Why don't you come over to our house, say on Tuesday night, and we'll teach them to you. And Jesus says, these are not the deep things of God. These are the deep things of Satan. So we piece these two clues together, and we can, with a pretty high degree of accuracy, infer that this is the heresy which is known as Gnosticism, which was a heresy that ravaged the early church, particularly in Asia Minor. Gnosticism refers to a secret knowledge, the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis, of deep spiritual mysteries learned from Gnostic teachers like Jezebel. By the way, sometimes these Gnostic teachers wrote Gospels. You may have heard of the Gospel of Thomas, which was found about 20 years ago or so. The Gospel of Thomas is a Gnostic Gospel produced in about the second century AD by a Gnostic teacher of the sort of Jezebel. This knowledge, this gnosis, usually involved a sharp division between the flesh and And the spirit, such that the soul or the spirit was good and the flesh or the body was bad. For this reason, they denied the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Thinking that absurd that the Son of God would have come and and incarnated in evil flesh. This is why the Apostle John in 1 John has to combat this particular heresy at a number of points. Gnosticism is what lies behind statements like these in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus, namely that he has not come in the flesh, is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. It is the same spirit of the Antichrist which was moving and infiltrating in the church at Thyatira. It's the same heresy. 
Now, because they viewed the physical realm as the lower evil realm, salvation in Gnosticism was viewed as an escape of the soul from the prison of the body and an absorption of sorts into the divine spiritual realm. It's pretty similar, actually, to modern-day Buddhism. And due to this devaluing of the physical, devaluing of the body, many Gnostics taught that what one did with one's body really didn't matter. It didn't have any impact upon the state of the soul. So they, they, they taught that there was no such thing as sin, only a lack of knowledge, which of course opened the door to all manner of licentiousness and immorality. Other Gnostics taught that the evil body had to be kept in check by a strict and severe form of asceticism. Paul writes to combat that when he speaks of men who forbid marriage and the eating of certain types of food in 1 Timothy chapter 4. So it's not difficult to imagine then what form of teaching this Jezebel was spreading throughout the church in Thyatira. She would have taught them that the physical world was bad, having been created by an evil lesser God known as the Demiurge, that Jesus came into this evil created world in order to appear but not really become flesh in the form of man, and that he came in order to rescue man out of this lower evil physical world and to bring our spirits once again into the divine world, not through the benefits of his atoning death on the cross or the resurrection received by faith, but rather through the revelation of secret divine mysteries and the revelation of secret knowledge. Jezebel evidently was of the licentious variety of Gnostics, teaching her followers that because the body was evil and temporal and was just going to be discarded, that the eternal soul and spirit was all that really mattered, then they need not choose between the idolatry and immorality of their culture and their commitment to Christ. You see how it works? She assured them, you can follow Jesus and participate in the idolatry and immorality of Thyatiran culture and still ascend in salvation to God. Which of course appealed to many of the members of the church who were suffering because of this commitment to Christ. But hear me, Jesus writes to tell them she could not be more wrong. What you do in the body not only matters, It is of eternal significance. What you do with your bodies, look at me, matters eternally. In verses 21 to 23, Jesus pronounces judgment upon the woman Jezebel and threatens judgment upon all her followers. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. I might pause there and say the argument that says that church discipline is somehow unchristlike does not take into account statements like that. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. Which are done, by the way, in the body. Three points jump out at me in these verses. Number one, I want you to note the patience of Christ in dealing with what is intolerable wickedness. Listen. This woman, Jezebel, is teaching false doctrine. She is lying about the living God. And her lies are leading people into eternal damnation. There is nothing worse than being a false prophet. 
She is leading the sheep of Christ into idolatry and immorality, leading them down the path of destruction, bringing shame and dishonor upon the name of Christ and upon the name of the church. And yet Jesus gave her time to repent. It is a wonder that lightning didn't fall from heaven and strike her the first time she opened her mouth. Judgment did not come immediately from the hand of God. And to her followers, to those who commit adultery with her, which is probably a metaphor for following her false teaching as she was leading them to transgress their covenant with Christ, to be unfaithful to Jesus, Jesus still extends to them grace and mercy and patience. He warns them of a great tribulation which will come upon them unless... They repent of her works. In other words, if they have ears to hear in verse 29, his warning, and if they respond in repentance and faith, they may yet be saved from the judgment that is coming upon them. And so may you this morning. Our God is a God of immense patience. And his patience is an opportunity for you to repent told you it's not by accident that you were ordained from the foundations of the world to be here this morning. If you hear the sound of my voice and if your heart is stirred with conviction to what I'm saying, the door of repentance is open for you. If you are in sin this morning, And you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's that sin that the Holy Spirit has placed his finger of conviction on and you wish he'd stop it right now. Just pressing, pressing, pressing upon it. Sin which has compromised your commitment to Christ and has placed you in the position of having committed spiritual adultery against him. Yet you sense the conviction and you you hear in my voice the voice of God calling to you by His grace. Then heed the call. Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. The call of this text to you by the Holy Spirit this morning is to repent. To forsake that idolatry. That immorality, you know of which he speaks. To forsake that, to turn away from it. To be like the citizens of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 who who brought all of their idols and their magic books and everything that connected them to the idolatry of Ephesus and to burn it on the proverbial fire in the middle of the square. Just leave it. Leave it here this morning and walk out in freedom and repentance following Christ and renewing your covenant vows. Today, if you hear his voice, the door remains open for you. You can come home. But there will come a day when that door will slam shut and it will not be reopened. Hear me. The opportunity for repentance will be passed and judgment will fall upon you, swift and severe. Such a time had come for Jezebel. Jesus promises, this is not a threat, this is a promise. Jesus promises to throw her upon a sickbed, which I take to mean that Jesus will strike her with disease resulting in death. The door for Jezebel had slammed shut. She was going to die in her sins. By the way, this is not the only time in the New Testament Jesus does such a thing. One thinks of the letter to the church in Corinth, which had been making a mockery of the Lord's Supper, and Paul says, it's because of this that many of you are sick and some of you have died, blaspheming the Lord's table. Her followers, Jesus 
says he will throw into a great tribulation, which is intense suffering of a similar sort, probably sickness, unless they repent. Their door is still open. Those who refuse to repent and so prove to be her spiritual children, he's going to kill. He'll slay them. And they will enter into everlasting punishment. And notice the effect of the Lord's judgment upon this church. Verse 23, all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and the heart. And I give to each one according to their works. Discipline and judgment, whether exercised by the church under the authority of Christ or exercised by the risen Christ himself directly, has the powerful effect of teaching the rest of us a healthy, biblical, reverential fear of him whose eyes are a flame of fire and whose feet are burnished bronze. Show me a church where the grace of God is taken for granted and sin is tolerated in its midst. And I will show you a church where the keys of the kingdom have been laid aside to the immortal peril of everyone present. In the remainder of the letter, Jesus gives a word of encouragement to the rest of the saints in Thyatira. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say I do not lay on you any other burden. To you who are not in serious, unrepentant sin this morning, whether it be hidden or open, Jesus lays on you no other burden than this. Listen, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Here's what he requires of you. Only hold fast what you have till I come. That's the charge from the risen Lord Jesus to you this morning. If you're not of those who need to repent as a result of this letter, the call to you is to hold fast. Grip tightly and don't let go no matter what. And there will come tribulation. You will endure tribulation. And tribulation is sneaky because Satan is deceptive. Your tribulation may not appear to you to be tribulation. It may be an unanswered prayer that has gone on a long time. Your tribulation may be some struggle for which there has been no deliverance. Your tribulation is whatever it is that tempts you to disbelieve the promise of God and to remove your trust and faith in Him. In spite of that, Jesus says, hold fast what, I, what you have until I come. And then He makes this promise. The one who conquers, who keeps my words to the end. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Two points demand our attention in closing. What does it mean to conquer? And what does Jesus promise to those who do? In every one of these seven letters, the unique promise that is given comes from the concluding vision in Revelation 21 and 22, the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, eternal salvation and the eternal state. In other words, the promise here is the same as the promise in every one of the seven letters. It is the promise of eternal life and everlasting joy in the presence of Christ. And in every one of these seven letters, that promise belongs to those and only to those who conquer or overcome their tribulation in this age. That promise belongs to you if and only if 
you hold fast what you have until he comes. In this letter to the church in Thyatira, Jesus defines for us what it means to overcome, to conquer. Verse 24, to conquer is not to hold to the teaching of Jezebel. It's not to learn the deep things of Satan. Verse 25, to conquer is to hold fast what you have until Christ returns. Verse 26, to conquer is to keep Christ's works until the end. All of this refers to, we can summarize it in this way, it is a rejection of false doctrine and ungodly living and a wholehearted embrace of the faith and the life that has been once for all delivered to the saints. G.K. Beale, great commentator on the book of Revelation, wrote that Christians must always beware of those who lay claim to new revelations or deeper truths that have never before been discerned or widely practiced in the body of Christ. Jesus lays no other burden upon us but this, that we hold fast to what we have until he comes. This. We must hold fast to this God-breathed word which proclaims a salvation not by the discovery of deep revelations and hidden knowledge which no one ever before in the history of the church ever dreamed up but, but now suddenly all the depths of the riches of knowledge have been, have been given to this one prophet. Hello, Mormonism. This book proclaims a salvation by free and sovereign grace through faith in the saving work of Jesus Christ and a sanctification by the Spirit who teaches all those in whom he dwells to flee from immorality and to depart from idolatry and to devote themselves wholly to Christ, following him by faith to the very end. But this God-breathed word also has something to say to us about what to do with false prophets like Jezebel and false believers who follow them. Look, Look up here. We as a church cannot hold fast to Christ's words. Like he says, it's what it means to overcome. Hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast to the word delivered to you. We cannot do that without exercising the keys of the kingdom. To conquer for the church at Thyatira means no longer tolerating that woman Jezebel or her offspring. Church discipline, church membership, Biblical church membership, opening the gates of the kingdom. Biblical church discipline, closing the gates of the kingdom. It's not a suggestion from Jesus, the head of the church. It is a command from the head of the church. Jesus judged the evildoers in Thyatira because the church would not. It should not have come to this point in Thyatira. I mean, where were the elders of the church whose job it is to protect the flock from false prophets like her? Where were the faithful believers who would stand up to her and to those who followed her and say, no more, you're not going to say things like this in the midst of Christ's bride? Make no mistake, First Baptist Nixa, overcoming in this age of tribulation means not only resisting compromise, but rejecting those who have already compromised and refused to repent. But if the church will do this when necessary, weeping in great sorrow because of the destruction that has come upon somebody's life, but knowing that it must in order to protect the rest of the church and honor the name of Jesus so that the rest of the churches will be taught to fear, right? If we'll do this, rise up, take hold of the keys of the kingdom and act in love for the name of Christ and love for the health and the purity of the church and love for the souls of those who are self-deceived, 
Jesus promises that we will share in his final victory and in his eternal kingdom and in his everlasting reign in the new heavens and the new earth. Verses 26 and 27 are a quotation from Psalm 2, 8 and 9, where Jesus promises to his son authority over the nations, authority to rule and authority to judge. And the final promise in verse 28, I will give him the morning star, will be picked up again in Revelation 22, 16, where Jesus says, I will give, or I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. In other words, the morning star is Jesus. So you have these two things. You have the star and you have the scepter or rod, same word. The star and the scepter are symbols of Christ's messianic reign and kingdom. So the word of God is this. Only those who honor Christ's authority and kingdom now on earth by holding fast to his word, holding fast to his works, wielding the keys of the kingdom which he has entrusted to his church, only those will share in his kingdom then and his authority then. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to this church. My Father, I pray for two groups of people here today. I pray for those who are in sin. They have listened to the voice of the false prophet, whoever it may be. They've succumbed to the charms of the prostitute, whatever form she may take in their life. And they know it. By the power of your Holy Spirit, they know it this morning. I pray that you will break the chains of sin and set them free. And if that is you, then you repent. You take off these garments of sin and you hand them to Jesus and you trade them for his garments of righteousness and you turn from that sin and you don't look back. Like Lot's wife, you don't look back. Leave it and be free this morning. Because I warn you by the authority of Christ, that sin will destroy your soul. And to the rest, struggling to hold on in this age of tribulation, whatever form that may take in their lives, I pray that you'll strengthen what remains. I pray that you'll give strength to weary fingers and tired hands as we cling fast to the shred of faith that still resides within the heart. Hold fast, beloved, what you have until He comes, and you will reign with Him forever. Recognize your tribulation as a temptation to unbelief and to apostasy. It is real and it is dangerous and hold fast to what you have until he comes.